You're listening to Unhooked. Today on the podcast is a special episode. It is one where we flip the script and actually I will be getting interviewed on today's episode. This is a conversation that I had with a good friend of mine, Sean Fargo, the creator of Mindfulness Exercises, also a former Buddhist monk himself, uh, and someone who I hold a lot of respect for, hold in high regard. And this is a conversation that we had for his podcast, for his uh, network, where he interviewed me about my story. And so we decided that we would share it on the Unhooked podcast as well, so you guys could learn a bit more about my story, about my past, my history with porn addiction, how I broke free from porn, and how some of the Buddhist practices that I got introduced to really helped me in my journey and helped me to this day. Um, so I talk about my own story, my own struggles, uh, and a little bit about my teaching these days. So without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hi, I'm Jeremy Lipwitz, and with over 12 years of meditation experience as a mindfulness trainer and coach for high performers, I've become obsessed with helping people break free from compulsive, unhealthy behaviors and addictions and step into a life of true freedom so that they can finally become their best selves and cultivate deeper and lasting fulfillment. I've created Unhooked, the Breaking Porn Addiction Podcast, to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to master your mind and optimize your life. This is Unhooked. So today we're speaking with Jeremy Lipkowitz. He's a meditation teacher, mindfulness coach. I've known Jeremy for, what, three or four years, maybe, give or take. Um, uh, he's a teacher who I've been following pretty closely and um, really admire his um, practice, but also his style of teaching. Uh, Jeremy has a very nice, um, soothing voice. He has a depth of practice. He's able to integrate mindfulness and meditation into just about any walk of life. And you can feel his heart. He has a sense of compassion and a wish to help people, which is the main thing. Uh, Jeremy is also a digital habits expert who works with entrepreneurs and executives and leaders. Uh, He works a lot with porn addiction. Um, He himself overcame addiction, shame, self-judgment, and depression in his early 20s with the help of mindfulness meditation. Uh, Mindfulness not only helped him let go of destructive behaviors, but it also allowed him to connect with deeper meaning and purpose in his life. For the past 10 years, Jeremy has been teaching mindfulness and emotional intelligence practices at universities, recovery centers, and companies throughout Asia and the U.S. He holds a bachelor's and master's degree in genetics and genomics (laughs) and spent several years at Duke University working towards a Ph.D. in genetics and systems biology before he turned full-time to teaching mindfulness. He's also an ICF certified executive coach. As a former scientist and academic, Jeremy has a great passion for bringing his uh, emotional intelligence-based coaching skills into the corporate and professional world. He realizes how powerful and transformative these practices can be for both skeptics and also senior level managers. He's known for his calm and grounded demeanor, his expertise in habits and high performance, and his compassionate approach to transformation. He has several coaching certifications and is a certified teacher with the Search Inside Yourself Leadership Institute, the mindfulness-based emotional intelligence program uh, born at Google, which I'm also a uh, certified teacher as well. So we share that in common. But Jeremy, like me, also also spent time living as a fully ordained Buddhist monk. 
Uh, I was in Thailand. Jeremy was in Myanmar or Burma and uh, has that uh, depth of practice um, uh, with a little bit of this Buddhist um, uh, roots or Buddhist approach. Uh, he now combines a science-based expertise with a hunger for personal development to help others be uh, disciplined in their minds and achieve genuine inner peace and fulfillment. Uh, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you here. Yeah, I'm happy to be here as well. Great. Um, so you have a lengthy bio uh, where it combines... Uh, masters in genetics, being a monk, um, helping people with uh, porn addiction and screen addiction. Um, one thing I failed to share was one of the things that initially attracted to me to your teachings, which was that there's some connection with donuts. Uh-huh. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about your affinity for the baked goods? I have a, a huge sweet tooth. Um, you know, I love cookies and brownies and donuts and, and anything that has that combination of, of butteriness and sweetness. Um, so, yeah, I like to include that in my teachings of mindfulness, how to kind of have a healthy relationship with some of these pleasures in life. Um, finding that, I guess, that middle path of not overindulgence, but not necessarily you know, complete restriction and repression. Um, so talking about, it, it's just a good case study to talk about, okay, how do we have a relationship with a donut? You know, can you enjoy it uh, without beating yourself up and, but also not get sucked into, you know, just overindulging in it? So I definitely have a sweet tooth and I talk about cookies and donuts in a lot of my teachings. <laughs> could be the the donut guru or the mindful donut teacher yeah um did you have experience actually baking donuts and cookies and stuff no but you know when i left my phd program in between that and and fully working full-time as a mindfulness specialist i did spend a few months working as a manager at a donut shop I went from a PhD at Duke University to selling donuts. Uh, and that was a very interesting transition. You know, I could talk a lot about the, the identity issues that I dealt with, uh, you know, all the ego issues of, okay, I'm an intelligent, smart, scientific person to, you know, asking people what kind of donut they would like. Um, so I did work in a donut shop for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about that journey of, um struggling with that identity and how you dealt with that because i could see a lot of people going through um changes in their profession um with these things that we might you know superficially deem as downgrades mm -hmm in our life or our, our identity maybe we lose a home maybe we lose a partner and now we're divorced maybe mm. um you know there's all sorts of these transitions that on the outside might seem quote-unquote bad but um you know so there's these self-judgments at play and so can you talk about how you handled that transition from phd student to uh donut seller yeah yeah you know for me most of my life i had been in in the academic world most of my young adult life and and uh, mid adult life i was a scientist and um, had built up just such a strong identity around my intelligence you know i thought that my intelligence was the most important thing and it thought that it made me better than other people. And, and it's one of the reasons why I started to realize that I needed to get out of the academic system is that it was so wrapped up in, you know, you're just as good as how many papers you've published or, you know, you need to be seen as the most intelligent person in the room. And 
what I saw is so many of my peers and the people that I was supposed to be looking up to had all of these insecurities around how successful they were, how smart they were. And it wasn't something that I was looking up to, you know, it wasn't something that I looked at them and said, that's the life I want. Because I realized that even though they might seem successful from the outside, you know, from society standards, they were tenured professors or, you know, successful by society standards, they weren't living a happy life. You know, they weren't filled with well-being and happiness and inner peace. And that's something that I recognized in myself that as successful as I was with all of my external endeavors, whether it was academics or sports or you know, anything external, I wasn't actually feeling happy inside. And so that was one of the big drivers of me deciding to leave was realizing, hey, you know, this is, it's not actually leading me in a direction I want. It's not leading me to greater happiness or greater inner peace. Um, so it was a hard, it, you know, it actually wasn't a hard decision to leave. I, it was quite easy because I just realized I didn't want to be a scientist. I didn't want to be in the academic world. And I wanted to teach people about mindfulness and meditation and well-being. And at that point, I had already been teaching uh, other graduate students and undergrads for a few years. So leaving the sciences wasn't hard. Um, but the identity, the ego did crop up a number of times where I had to kind of reinvent and say, okay, if I'm not identifying with being a, a smart, intelligent person at a prestigious university, how am I going to identify? You know, what is it that I'm putting my value as a human being on? And you know, what I realized is it was more around my values and how I was showing up and the things that I uh, cared about, you know, compassion, patience, being a good listener, smiling at people, you know, giving that kind of warmth of spirit to others, being of service. Um, so there were so many things that I could focus on that were more important. And that really helped me. But it was a struggle because I was so identified with this. Yes, I'm an intelligent, smart person. Yeah. Yeah. I, it reminds me a lot of my journey right before I became a monk is realizing that the externals were kind of what I was hoping for, but the internals were missing. And I wasn't happy. And the people kind of even ahead of me on the sort of business game uh weren't happy and it's like started questioning what i wanted and why and what was my purpose mm -hmm. so when you went through this transformation of uh sort of dropping that identity as this you know smart phd uh person um and reorienting to the inner life how then did you make the transition into the monastery where you became a monk um and how did you decide to do that yeah you know it's interesting my monastic experience is quite different from i mean i'm sure everyone's monastic experience is unique in its own way um, for me, my monastic experience came many years later, you know, so I had started even before I left the academic world, left the sciences, left my PhD, I had been starting to do these silent meditation retreats. So Vipassana retreats or insight meditation retreats. And those had such a profound impact on my life. You know, I started my first one in India when I was around 25. Um, and once I did one of them, I realized how impactful it was and how important it was. I went on them regularly. So it was maybe once every six or seven months, I would go on a 10-day retreat. And I did that for many, many years. Uh, and then a few years into that, you know, maybe eight years later or so, um, I decided to, to go on a month-long meditation retreat in Burma. And at this month-long silent retreat, you had the possibility to do a temporary ordination. And so for me, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was deciding, oh, okay, I really want to be a monk for the rest of my life. It was more 
knowing how important this practice of insight meditation and and Buddhist philosophy and all of it was, uh, it was more something that I wanted to experience for a while, but it, I knew it wasn't going to be for the rest of my life. And it wasn't, um, yeah, I knew I, I didn't want to be a monk forever. So for me, it was actually more of a, an experience to have um, for a while. And in some ways to intensify the experience of the, the month-long retreat as well, uh, mm. because you take on a few uh, extra rules that, you know, that apply to you. Um, so, so that decision wasn't a momentous decision. This was much later in my, my path as a, as a practitioner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, these, you know, 10 day, one month, three month retreats can be so powerful. And I recommend, you know, everyone listening uh, to try one if you haven't tried one especially a like a silent vipassana or insight uh, mindfulness meditation retreat where you're sitting walking sitting walking mindful eating you know limiting the amount of distractions in our lives and really just being mindful of each moment uh, seeing the thoughts come and go feeling tones come and go um, and to get a glimpse into the workings of our our minds and um, it can be so helpful for resetting our nervous system and uh, opening the heart and letting the mind settle and um, you know retreats are such a powerful way to deepen our own practice and um, to strengthen our mindfulness teachings because we're speaking from experience in that uh, those layers of uh, of depth that we go to, uh, layers of presence, and um, and so I'm, you know, glad that a lot of your practice is based on these retreats, and um, I'm, uh, yeah, just curious about maybe any um, momentous. Uh, times in your life on retreat that maybe had a powerful impact on you. Maybe you had a, a challenge in a retreat where it felt particularly painful or a point where you um, found, you know, bliss or, um, you know, you notice some of your habits of mind changing. Any Any particular moments of retreat that you can share that might be of use for us yeah you know it, in some ways it's hard to kind of pick a a few moments because as you know you've been on these retreats it's like every moment it is a roller coaster ride you know a lot of people they hear a silent meditation retreat and there's some people might think oh this sounds so relaxing you get to take a break and just you know hang out and do nothing and in some ways, these retreats are the most challenging things I've ever experienced. You, know, you, you have no distraction from the craziness that's going on in your mind, you know, all the emotions, all the drama, uh, there's no escape from it. And you really have to be there and just sit with it and, and experience it. Um, and so over the years, you know, at this point, I've done you know, 17 or 18 Vipassana retreats, and each one of them has had hundreds of different insightful moments and challenges um you know a few things that come to me one is just the realization you know when you simplify in this way and you don't have any phones or books or music or internet and you're just sitting and walking and having lunch sitting walking having tea sitting walking and you can experience such a profound contentment in the simplest of things and there's there is one moment that stands out to me. I was at Spirit Rock for a retreat and I was sitting outside, I think it was after lunch and I just had a cup of tea. And I remember just kind of stirring the tea and just hearing the, the clink of the spoon against the teacup. So there was this kind of simplicity of, you know, just not going anywhere, not needing anything extra, just that peacefulness in the present moment. And to realize that, most of my life I had been chasing so much, chasing 
pleasure, chasing excitement, chasing all the extremes, money, status, fame. And none of it was actually making me happy. But this contentment you could find in just sitting and enjoying a cup of tea and feeling the wind on your face. And you know, it can be so beautiful to have those reminders that happiness and contentment and fulfillment isn't some far off thing. You know, it's just right here within you if you know how to stop chasing things. Um, so that's one moment that stands out. Another, you know, big part of my story of getting into mindfulness and meditation is, you know, as we might talk about is around porn addiction and lust and, and sex addiction. And for me on retreat, you know, often, particularly in my early days, there was a lot of lust coming up. And on Vipassana retreats, there's this thing that we call a Vipassana romance, where, you know, you're, you're in silence, you're there for 10 days, you're not talking to anyone, you're not even making eye contact with people. But the mind has these ways of playing tricks on you where you start to, you know, start to see someone and maybe you're attracted to them and maybe they put their shoes next to your shoes in the meditation hall and you start getting these ideas and you think, oh, okay, maybe I'll go talk to them after the retreat and maybe we'll get married and we'll fall in love and we'll have kids and then we'll get divorced and the mind goes all over the place. Um, and, you know, this would come up for me on a fairly regular basis as would lust, you know, just the pure kind of carnal, physical desire to be with someone. And a big part of my story was realizing how painful lust is. And, and lust being different from desire, you know, being different from just attraction. Lust is that feeling of I need to be with this person. I need to have this person in order to be happy. And that lust that would come up, you know, you can feel the fire and you can feel the, the burning sensation of, of unhappiness and how strong that is. Um, and I remember learning how to befriend my lust, you know, rather than to try to repress it and say, ah, oh, lust is bad, like go away. I'm supposed to be a peaceful monk and not feel these, you know, but instead just learning how to accept it and say, oh, lust is here again. Or, you know, my old friend lust, you know, sit with me for a while. And so rather than indulging in it, you know, and going and watching porn or trying to find someone to sleep with, rather than that, and then also rather than suppressing it, denying it, trying to push it away, to actually just make space for the experience and make space for the emotion. And that tool of accepting and making space for what's happening is so valuable for, for any emotion that you're experiencing, whether it's sadness, grief, anxiety, anger, you know, all of these things, if you can learn how to, to be with it and say, oh, my old, my old friend anger, or my old friend insecurity. Uh, and it just makes the experience so much more manageable not not beyond manageable it, you know it makes it a, a fulfilling moment to actually be with a strong emotion and not push it away so those those are two that come to mind but you know honestly there's a million different experiences that i've had on retreat that are valuable yeah well you touched on and eloquently described two of the huge ones <laughs> that uh, are so transformative um, you know, a lot of people ask me, what, what did I learn as a monk? Or like, how did being a monk change you? And, and I usually talk about what you just spoke about with the contentment piece. Like, you don't really need much to be happy. <laughs> um, you learn how to be content with basically no personal possessions, you mm -hmm. know, outside of an alms bowl and a pair of robes. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, and, and, you know, because there's no distractions or very few distractions, uh, you are sort of confronted with all these emotions. And the whole purpose of the mindfulness retreat is to learn how to be with these different emotions, which can be incredibly difficult when 
these are the emotions that we've been running away from <laughs> yeah or deeming as horrible or wrong uh for 20 30 45 years so um it's it's an incredibly difficult thing to do it can be so simple and yet so hard sometimes mm. to just be with our old friend uh lust or anger uh or shame that mm -hmm. or fear that are kind of lurking underneath oftentimes and so some people will say well why would i want to sign up for that <laughs> <laughs> Sounds awful, but the freedom that we experience when we practice it can be paradigm shifting in the sense that um, yeah. we don't have to fight it. We don't have to run away from it. Um, there's this sense of, um, yeah, fulfillment that comes from um, learning how to be friends with it. And it diffuses the emotion um, with this light of awareness. Yeah. There's one thing you, you just, sorry for interrupting, but yeah. the, the word you said, freedom. And for me, I think that's one of the most important things that, that retreats do for me. There's this concept in, in Buddhism and mindfulness that they often say on retreat of unconditional freedom. And I think what's so beautiful about that is that so much of my life and so, so many people's lives is trying to arrange the conditions in our life to be you know pleasant and to be good and all of our happiness is so conditional you know as long as i have this much money and this kind of partner and people are treating me this way like the happiness is conditional and conditioned on things being the way we want them to be and it's a very fragile kind of happiness you know it's so we need everything to be just in the way we want it. And it can't be anything other than that. And otherwise we're unhappy. And kind of the promise of Vipassana, the promise of mindfulness and meditation is this unconditional freedom that it doesn't matter what's going on in your external life. You can experience that freedom and that fulfillment from within. And it's, you know, one of the, the beautiful parables or, or stories that I love from Buddhism is like this king who, you know, had some thorns laying around his kingdom. And he told all of his you know, workers and people, he's like, okay, cover the whole world with leather so that when I walk, you know, I'll never step on a thorn. And someone was like, hey, dude, like, why don't you just wrap leather around your feet? And that way you can walk wherever you want and you don't have to worry about it. And to me, that's what mindfulness and meditation does. It's like wrapping leather around your feet. It's, it doesn't matter if you're in a stressful environment, if you're experiencing lust, if you lose things, you know, it's like you have that freedom from within, you have the strength and the resources that you can go into any situation, you can experience anything and still maintain your inner peace, your inner calm, your balance there's you know in, in buddhism we talk about the eight worldly winds which are like these eight things that come and go so pleasure and pain gain and loss fame and disrepute and it's like we can't help those you know those things will come we have pleasure and we have pain we have gain and we have loss and so we can't control those from we can't have only the four good ones and none of the four bad ones right so in order to deal with that you know we cultivate this inner strength uh, so that unconditional freedom is a big part of, of what retreats can do for you. Absolutely. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, and it, it offers us freedom from always doing and getting and, um, <clears throat> and offers us this uh, contentment to be. And we get to... Um, appreciate these moments of our life and appreciate ourselves um you know the more we meditate the more we go through these difficult times of being on retreat um, the more inner confidence we often build and um, these new habits of mind and turning towards um reality rather than uh 
anesthetizing ourselves or distracting ourselves with Netflix or bourbon or, you know, 16 Twinkies. Um, (laughs) And so I'm wondering, um, yeah, so right now, you know, you've been working a lot with um, addiction, uh, namely Mm -hmm. porn addiction. I know you've done a lot of work with, I think, screens, I believe, as well. But um uh you know addiction we can say a lot about addiction but i'm just curious what parts of your own story you can share around your addictions to things and what might have been sort of near the root of that in your experience um and why you think there was this fuel for you know, wanting something mm-hmm. external and um, how you are unable to unravel that. Yeah. You know, it's so fascinating with addiction that all addictions are, are very similar at the core level, at the root level. And it, it almost really doesn't matter what the behavior or the substance is. There are differences. There's some nuances in terms of how you work with different addictions just because of how they manifest. Um, but at the core, at the root level, you know, all addictions are an attempt to escape some suffering, to, you know, run away, to numb out or, you know, find some peace in, in a state of pain or suffering. Uh, it's, it's an attempt to solve a problem that we're having. And so whether it's porn or video games or junk food or Netflix or, you know, work, or exercise, you know, all of these things can be addictions in terms of these something that we use to escape a feeling and that has detrimental effects or consequences in our life. So for me, you know, I've had, you know, addictions throughout my life and they've come up in different ways. Um, and, and I think a lot of people have addictions and it's on a spectrum, right? You know, for some people, it can be a very minor addiction where it is holding them back in some way. It's having some negative effects. It might not be the end of the world. It might not be ruining their life, um, but it's something that is kind of used as a way to avoid dealing with the problem or to numb out or escape. So for me, you know, it, it often took the form of um, porn was one of them, you know, and that started at an early age, seven, eight, nine, started looking at lingerie catalogs and, and you get dial up internet. Uh, And then it progressed, but it also took the form of um, junk food. You know, I remember when I was in middle school and I I had to walk home from school. And I remember that, you know, on the walk home from school, I would actually stop at like three different convenience stores because I would, I would buy candy and junk food at each one, but I was so ashamed of how much candy I wanted that I would buy like a couple candy bars at one and then I would walk a few blocks, you know, down and get a few more candy bars at another one. And so, you know, junk food, porn, video games, um, later on it, you know, turns into work addiction and wanting to get validation and and all these things. Um, A big part of addiction is the shame that arounds it, the self-judgment, the self-loathing, the sense of being broken or isolated. And so that's a a huge one as well. And one of the things that I love about mindfulness practices is particularly when you infuse it with love and kindness and self-love and self-acceptance and self-compassion, it's a way to heal from one of the root causes of addiction and, and those behaviors is that shame in the sense of being broken or in some way and so for any addiction whether it's someone working with porn or junk food or anything alcohol you know learning how to love yourself and say i'm not broken i am worthy of love uh, that's one of the first steps so i i forget if i answered your question no yeah absolutely yeah and i really appreciate that that um that eloquent answer and I think you're really touching on the root of a lot of people's addiction, maybe not everyone's, because certainly 
um, you know, we can touch on trauma here and um, genetics to some degree, but, you know, shame is such an underlying root for a lot of addiction and, um, you know, shame can touch on um, trauma as well, but mm -hmm. um, so many people feel unworthy of love or not being good enough um not being smart enough not being good enough looking um uh you know and and they may have yeah had some missing ingredients in their childhood or had some experiences in their childhood childhood that led them to feel uh ashamed of themselves mm -hmm. and um a lot of us cover that up um uh, or try to feed that that missing hole in ourselves mm -hmm. uh, with these different addictions and um, might numb ourselves out or distract ourselves, as you said, from from feeling this. And um, you know, I think shame is um, different than guilt. You know, guilt is more like I did something wrong. Shame is more like I am wrong mm -hmm. type of thing. And um, and it's um, yeah, it's it's sad. You know, when when we have this mistaken identity or this mistaken belief of ourselves. And I agree. I think um, these heart based practices. Um, of loving kindness and self-compassion, self-forgiveness, um, go a huge way, go a long way of helping to um, helping us to feel worthy again of our own love and of other people's love. Um, and um, would you be able to touch a little bit on some of these heart-based practices that you found to be helpful for you and, and in your work for others? Are there um, kind of specific flavors or phrases or practices that you found helpful for addressing shame with the heart? Yeah. You know, one one of the things about addiction that I like to, to just think about is, you know, addiction is, as you mentioned around trauma and a lot of addiction comes from trauma and there's a misconception that, you know, it has to be a big trauma, you know, trauma with a capital T, like something big happened in your life. But for many people, it's not some big event. It's, you know, micro trauma, just like the small experiences of not getting your needs met when you were younger. Maybe you didn't get the support you needed. Maybe your parents were absent. Maybe you got bullied. And it's all these small events that can add up and, and make you feel like you're not safe and like you don't have what you need. And so that's, you know, what causes many of us to reach out for these soothing you know self-medicating experiences that give us the dopamine give us the feeling of safety and the feeling of control um, and so when an addictive behavior crops up you know, what i like to kind of recognize is oh this is you know a young part of me that is looking for safety this is a part of me that is looking for security and so to include kind of that visualization of, of a young child that's in pain a young child that's suffering or alone or isolated. And in the same way that, you know, if you saw a young, you know, helpless child on the street, that was just, just like the cutest thing ever. And was alone and homeless. And your heart would just reach out for that child and say, Oh, you poor thing. Like, let me protect you. Let me care for you. And so one of the tools is like, can we learn to love ourselves in the same way? Can we learn to, see ourselves as that hurt child that needs love and support. Um, and so that's one of the ways you can kind of infuse a loving kindness practice for yourself is, you know, as you're doing a, a metta meditation or a loving kindness meditation, and, you know, you're saying phrases like, 
you know, may you be happy and peaceful, may you be safe, may you, you know, live with ease and well-being, whatever phrases you want to use. And we can talk about some phrases later, but to almost visualize sending it to your younger self, you know, and say, hey, you know, I'm here for you. I care for you. And this is where a bit more of the compassion comes in is, is you know, I care about your pain and your suffering. And may you be free from this pain and suffering. Or just, hey, I'm here for you. I care for you. And so that I, I found really helpful. A lot of the clients I work with find helpful as well is seeing that inner child within you that needs love and support. Um, and it's not always easy to connect with. There can be a number of reasons, you know, especially as we talk about trauma, there can be a number of reasons why that's hard to connect with. Um, so sometimes it's helpful to visualize someone that you know cares about you. You know, you might call it a benefactor, but it might just be a relative that you really appreciate, a teacher that you've had that you know cares for you, someone that you instantly feel that sense of warmth and love. And to use that person as, as a visualization and to imagine them sending, you know, that love to you. Um, so there's a number of ways to tap into love and kindness. Um, one of my teachers, uh, Michelle McDonald, I remember being on retreat with her once and we're doing a loving kindness practice. And she said, you know, sometimes you have to interview different people for your visualization. Like you think, oh, okay, I've got the best person in mind to visualize for love and kindness. And then you do it and it just, it feels like dry. It doesn't feel, you know, like it's infused with that loving kindness. And so you have to try out a few people and, and you know, maybe someone that you didn't even think it would really work with. And you're like, wow, I really feel that sense of love and kindness. I feel the compassion there. Um, so those are just a few ideas, you know, about how to, to bring that in. But, you know, just the main thing is recognizing that when you're in that place of addiction, you know, you're in pain. And can you treat yourself the way you would treat a friend? Or can you treat yourself the way you would treat a young, helpless child? Beautiful. Yeah, what a wonderful practice. And I can just feel my heart tenderizing as you're talking about this. Um, yeah, last year I went on a retreat and the retreat teacher asked me to bring a picture of my childhood self printed mm. out and I didn't know why, but I brought it and, and we went through a similar exercise and, and it was helpful to have a printout of what I looked like when I was a kid, rather than me trying to imagine myself when I was three, mm. um, but to have like a visual and I could connect with it and then internalize it. Um, and it kind of helped that feeling grow a little bit more, um, you know, and different things will work for different people, but um, yeah, what a powerful way to help heal our childhood in some way by reconnecting with them. Yeah. And, um, um, you know, a lot of the times uh, when people connect with, shame and when they cultivate this open heart um, and this sense of care for ourselves in the midst of this shame and in the midst of this addiction and the, the, the in the midst of this unworthiness or this feeling of unworthiness a lot of the time there's this sense of grief that comes up and um you know the floodgates of tears can come up and you know we may carry judgments of grief itself as being weak uh um and so i i wonder um you know either in your experience or with your work with your clients I know maybe grief doesn't come up in the boardroom so much uh, because the container may not be appropriate, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about um, the arising of grief and how we may be able to meet it 
with the same warmth. And um, if you have any tips or tricks on meeting grief through this process. Yeah, you know, grief, shame, sadness, anger, you know, these are they're all natural responses to difficulties that we've had. Um, we talked about trauma and you know, often trauma involves other people. And so sometimes there's the anger and the hatred of what other people did to me. Um, there can be the grief of uh, a childhood where you didn't get what you needed. And these are really strong emotions and they can be very uncomfortable. And, you know, particularly in the context of meditation, it's like, we, we don't want to sit with it. We want to run away. We want to stand up and end the meditation go look at Netflix or Instagram and kind of avoid. Right? And again, as we talked about on the, with the purpose of these silent retreats, it's like learning how to sit with those experiences, whether it's grief or anger or shame or sadness and make space for it and, and kind of hold it. And for me, when I do it, I, I always visualize almost turning towards the emotion and hugging it like putting my arm around it or hugging it and saying just to the emotion itself, like, Hey, you know, you're safe here and, and I'm here for you. You know, that whole, my old friend or almost as if the emotion itself was a, a young child that was in pain and just saying, Hey, oh, grief is here. Can I sit with this? Or, you know, I'm here for you. And so seeing that as, in some ways, the purpose of training, you know, that is what we're doing. A lot of people, it's so interesting, you know, we talk about mindfulness and a lot of people think, okay, the, the purpose is to follow every breath and to be really concentrated. And I'm like, that's not the point at all. You know, the point is learning how to have a, a better relationship with what's coming up for you. You know, and if, if grief is coming up, don't worry about the breath, let the breath go away and learn how to be in relationship to grief. Uh, and learning how to make peace with your grief and comfort your grief and not suppress it, not, you know, push it away. So much of the suffering we experience is from either pushing things away that we don't want or grasping onto the states of mind that we do want. Like, oh, finally, concentration. Let me hold on to this forever. You know, I need to be concentrated. And that just causes us to get wound up and tight. And in the same way, grief comes up and we're like, oh no, grief. I don't want grief. Let it, you know, push it away. But instead it's like anything that arises, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, you know, can we learn how to sit with it? And this is in, in meditation practice. Sometimes we talk about this practice called Vedanas or like the feeling tones of any experience. And one interesting way to practice meditation is just to notice what's the feeling tone of any experience that's coming up and any experience whether it's a mental experience a visual experience physical has a feeling tone meaning it's either pleasant or unpleasant or neutral and the tendency of the mind when we're not paying attention is if something pleasant comes up we want to you know grab onto it and hold onto it and if something unpleasant comes up we want to push it away so grief comes up, it's unpleasant. And if we're not mindful, we think, oh, get out of here. Let me get back to my pleasant meditation. Um, but a really cool way to practice is just to say, oh, this is unpleasant. And I can sit with it. I don't need to push it away. And so there's kind of two things that I'm, I'm offering here. One is uh, the, the compassion of recognizing it's a difficult experience and saying, oh, okay, can I sit with this and I care for you and, and bringing that compassion into it. And the other is kind of the equanimity that we talk about of when something's difficult, you know, that's coming up, you know, can you just say, oh, this is unpleasant, but I don't need to push it away. Or, oh, this is pleasant, but I don't need to grasp onto it and try to hold it there. Uh, so both of those, you know, approaches, you know, compassion and caring for it and the equanimity, the wisdom of, I don't need to do anything with this, uh, can be really valuable. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, 
Yeah, and so a lot of your work these days is around uh, this addiction to porn, which is not really talked about very much in our society. Um, and I get the feeling like it's a growing addiction. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I assume that the majority of people are male who are addicted to porn, although... I imagine there are many women who struggle with this too. Mm -hmm. um, you know, porn is a relatively recent phenomenon, I would imagine. Just maybe I'm wrong, but, um, you know, just with the internet and also, you know, there's magazines and whatnot, but, you know, 500 years ago, there wasn't the proliferation of mm -hmm. Maybe I'm naive, but it seems like porn is more of a recent thing, especially with cell phones and the internet and just people's ability to access uh, pornography. And I imagine it can be so powerful of an addiction because it, it feeds into our primal mm -hmm. um, nature of, of procreation. And, you know, we have hormones raging and um you know and so it, it i imagine it's quite powerful addiction that people would be struggling with um you know easy to access mm -hmm. and there's not a lot of support around this and so i'm really mm -hmm. glad that you're offering uh, your coaching and your wisdom on helping people to overcome this addiction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I imagine some people might not feel like what they're going through is an addiction. I think mm -hmm. some people feel that way, but a lot of people who are technically addicted may not feel like it's an addiction. Mm -hmm. um, because they're not getting drunk, mm -hmm. um, you know, and it might not impact their work life or professional life to a large degree, usually, I would imagine. So um, it's kind of an interesting addiction to have. Yeah. And so I'm curious uh in the moments that we have left together if you could talk a little bit about um some of the peculiar or um unique um aspects of this type of addiction of, of pornography and yeah. any interesting insights that might differ from another type of addiction um or is it just you know just like any other addiction yeah. can you help paint the yeah, picture there's, on... there's tons of things so there's so many things that uh, that this just brought up for me so a few things you said you know some people might not know they have an addiction right and part of the reason is there's a couple of reasons one is that for many people it starts at such a young age and they've been using it you know almost every day since they were since before they can really remember, you know, seven or eight years old, they might've started and you're using it every day. And so it's almost like that parable, you ask a fish, how's the water? And they say, what water? And you ask a, you know, a grown man, you know, how's your, you know, what are the consequences of porn on your life? And you're like, what consequences? Because it's just part of their life. Um, also the effects of it can be very subtle and they're not immediate, you know, with with alcohol, with hardcore drugs, you know, you might experience those consequences right away or, you know, an hour later or, you know, the next morning. Um, with porn, it, it's changing you on a neurological level. And so we're seeing the negative effects or the consequences maybe three months down the road, maybe a year down the road, and they're subtle but cumulative. So how they influence our intimacy, our sexual relationships, our partnerships, our ability to focus, you know, there's so many ways that it affects us on a more subtle but gradual level. So that's just a little bit about that. You also mentioned, um, you know, is porn new? And 
it it is both new and not new. And it's not new in the sense that, you know, pornographic imagery has been around for hundreds, thousands of years. That's not new. Um, you know, sex work has been around for thousands of years as well. So uh, some of these things are not new, but what is new is modern day high speed internet pornography that is different from things we've seen in the past. And in particular, what's different about it is the accessibility of it, you know, the availability, the affordability, and then and the novelty of it, and the anonymity as well. But what makes modern day pornography so, I don't want to say dangerous, but just so potentially addictive, uh, is that there's an infinite variety, a, a relatively infinite variety of things that you can access. And so you you will actually see people who are watching eight or nine hours of porn per day because you can just keep finding new stuff to trigger your dopamine. You know, it's interesting with food addiction, you can only eat so much food before you get physically sick and your stomach just gets full. You can't just keep sitting there and eating more sugar. But with porn, you actually can just keep finding new content, new material, and you can sit there hitting your dopamine button for hours and hours on end because you're looking at new content. There's infinite novelty to sit there and trigger your dopamine system. And it's also what leads people into more and more extreme uh, content is they get habituated with, you know, normal sex and normal porn, and then they need more and more extreme things to get the same level of excitement, the same level of dopamine. The other issue with uh, porn is what we call the three A's of porn, the three A's of porn addiction, the accessibility of it. You know, everyone has a smartphone now. You know, every nine-year-old boy has a smartphone and can go into his bedroom and access Pornhub. So that's one thing. It's just highly accessible where it wasn't in the past. It's also incredibly affordable, which means it's actually free. So a lot of drugs you have to pay for. If you want alcohol, you have to go to the store and buy it. With porn, you, know, you just, it's free and it's easily accessible. And then the third one is the anonymity. So, you know, again, alcohol, you have to go to a store, you have to go to a bar, you know, mostly people kind of know that you're using it. With porn, you can do it completely anonymous. And so those three A's are kind of the, the firestorm of porn addiction, why it makes it so, so addictive in, in our society. Um, so there's so many topics and, and like you said, it's not something that we talk about and yet it's a huge issue. So many people struggle with it. And one of the reasons is that for some reason, I don't necessarily know why, but for some reason, sex and porn addictions are more shameful than other addictions. You know, people can openly talk about being an alcoholic and saying, yeah, I'm in recovery for you know, being an alcoholic, going to my 12-step program, it's very hard for people to admit porn and sex addiction because it feels for some reason more shameful. Like, oh, I'm, I'm a pervert, I'm broken. You know, oh, if people knew they wouldn't want me to be around their kids or that, you know, it, it's very sensitive. And so even though so many people deal with this issue it's not rare it's not uncommon it doesn't make you a pervert it's just we are sexual beings and this is one of the things i really try to stress in the work that i do is that you know sexuality is a beautiful part of being a human and you know we don't want to suppress or deny our sexuality or shame our sexuality and part of recovering from porn addiction is really embracing your sexuality and saying no, my sexuality is not broken. My sexuality doesn't make me a bad person. I need to learn how to have a healthy relationship to this, you know, and actually embrace my sexuality. If I'm attracted to someone, that's a beautiful thing. It doesn't mean that I should then go, you know, grope them or indulge in unhealthy behaviors, but it's like the sexuality itself is beautiful. And so the other thing that, you know, just to talk about is, as you mentioned, men don't have a lot of emotional support you know like for women there's a lot of you know women's circles and women's groups and going to therapy is more normalized but because of the society we live in 
the toxic masculinity, you know, all of the stuff, men don't have those uh, emotional support groups in the same way. So for many men, there's no one to talk to about this. And, and on top of that, you know, it's kind of exacerbated by the fact that it's a shameful and sensitive issue that even if men do have a place to talk about it, it's very hard to open up about it. You know, to say, yeah, I'm really struggling with porn addiction or I'm watching stuff that doesn't feel ethical. It's like there aren't these safe spaces for men to talk about. And it does affect men and women. You know, it does affect men more because, you know, our physiology, we're hardwired a little bit differently. Um, and there's some nuance there as well. You know, I, I'm, I'm not anti-porn. I think there's a lot of nuance to it. I think some people can have a healthy relationship to it. Um, and it's, it's never about the substance. Like I'm not anti-alcohol. I'm not anti, you know, drugs. It's like, what's your relationship to this thing? Uh, and that's what I try to help people see. It's like, you don't have to be anti-sex or anti-porn. It's anti-addiction. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing a lot of that nuance. And like you said, with the firestorm of, uh, say, conditions that are leading to this proliferation of porn addiction, it's um alarming that mm-hmm. that um so many people so many men are so susceptible to this given the conditions of affordability and accessibility and what was the the third a that you mentioned anonymity anonymity yeah, yeah. and um yeah and there's the lack of support definitely Mm -hmm. out there and the shame as you mentioned around it um how can people get a hold of you and what do you offer around supporting people with porn addiction yeah so people you know can find me i have a podcast that I host myself talking about this issue. Um, I also have an online course specifically geared towards helping people understand uh, how to break free from digital addictions. Uh, so it goes through some of the, the habit science, um, you know, understanding addiction, building a stronger mental foundation. And you know, a big part of recovery, just a little side note, is, is building a more fulfilling life. That we know that a lot of addiction comes when we're not getting our needs met in terms of our relationships, our physical health, mental well-being. Um, and there's some very interesting studies, you know, that point to that. And so in order to actually recover, you can't just stop the behavior and just try to white knuckle it. You actually have to build the inner tools and the inner fulfillment um, so that you don't need addiction. You know, you don't need to escape. It's like building a life that you don't need to escape from. Um, So anyways, I I talk about this in my online course so people can find that. Just go to my website, um, which, you know, we'll link, I imagine. And and then also I work with people one-on-one. So, you know, probably the the best way to get support is is that direct accountability, you know, having somebody in your corner to, to hold you accountable, but also to champion you and remind you of what's possible and give you that support when you need it. Um, so I do one-on-one coaching work as well around this issue. Great. And what's the name of your podcast? It's called Unhooked. So if you look Unhooked and then my name, or even if you just search Unhooked on any of the podcast platforms, you'll find it. Beautiful. Um, yeah. Any parting words, any, uh, thoughts about um, mindfulness practice uh, shame mm-hmm. porn addiction donuts <laughs> yeah I, you know I was actually just preparing um, a podcast episode that I, I want to make around this one thing and it's just to remind people that whatever you're going through you're not alone you know that, that's one of the the things that exacerbates addiction, but it exacerbates just any difficulty that you're experiencing is 
whether you're going through addiction or stress or body image issues, you know, eating disorders, it's easy to feel like everyone else has got it figured out and I'm the only one kind of broken or struggling with this. You know, loneliness is a big, you know, epidemic right now of people feeling like everyone else has friends and everyone else is connected and I'm lonely and, you know, don't have people. And just to know that you're not alone and know that, you know, you're not broken, um, that alone can really make a big difference. Really connecting with the fact that, hey, you know, this is something that many people experience. And in particular with porn addiction, you know, I, I stress it because it's one of those things, like you said, nobody talks about. And so when a guy does struggle with it or when a girl does struggle with it, they think, gosh, I must be a freak, you know, must be a pervert and just broken. And um, so to really understand, you know, it doesn't mean you're broken or flawed or unlovable. Beautiful. Yeah. If you're listening to this, um, we love you. Mm -hmm. and uh and you are worthy of love and happiness and um yeah and there is um a way through it with the light of you know caring gentle awareness and mindfulness uh and you can get unhooked from this uh with the help of jeremy lipkowitz our esteemed friend of mindfulness exercises. Uh, I will add that Jeremy Lipkowitz is also a, a senior teacher for our Connect community, uh, a free online community where mindfulness practitioners can uh, connect with each other, sit together, and um, co-create community. So um but jeremy thank you so much for sharing your wisdom uh with us today around so many topics um we have his links to his offerings down below please check them out and um subscribe to unhooked wherever you get your podcasts jeremy thank you so much for joining us today thank you it's been a pleasure